This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the one and only Maya Culpa podcast, now on the Midas Touch Network. So be sure to look for the blue banner for the latest episodes of our show. And now for the news. A partial government shutdown is on schedule for this week, and yet Republicans in the House of Representatives seem more interested in performative politics than, say, governing. Instead of leading us away from a fiscal cliff, MAGA Mike Johnson is leading press circles on the House floor and, quote, figuring out his next move. I wonder if he's figured out that he's completely unqualified to be Speaker of the House yet. Rather than keep the government afloat, James Comer, chair of the House Oversight Committee, is looking for an excuse to impeach President Biden. He has alleged that Biden was involved in some shady business dealings in 2018 before Biden was even president that involved a $200,000 loan repayment to the president from his brother James. So Comer started firing off subpoenas to anyone associated with the Bidens. Hunter Biden, James Biden, Commander, I mean the dog, I mean the Biden family dog. But top Democrat Jamie Raskin wasn't having it, saying that Comer has no evidence that shows the president committed any wrongdoing, much less an impeachable offense. And yet Comer abuses his power, running after conspiracy theories and embarrassing lies. But late last week, in a bizarre bit of tit-for-tat, The Daily Beast reported that it is in fact, it's Comer who has been involved in shady business dealings with his own brother. Land swaps, shell companies, and even an unreported $200,000 loan. All real evidence of real crimes. So that compelled Florida Democrat Jared Moskowitz to tweet his OMOC subpoenas to Comer saying, We fully expect the chairman to comply. I mean, (laughs) a great joke to be sure, but what about the looming government shutdown? Well, according to Reuters, the cooler heads in Congress prevailed, and a stopgap measure was released over the weekend that will avert the shutdown. But it only happened because Moody's credit agency lowered its outlook on our government's credit rating to negative. A negative rating is what happens when seriously unserious people are left in charge. And now for the Trump trial watch. At least for now, Judge Cannon will be keeping her May 2024 trial date with Donald Trump in the Mar-a-Lago classified documents case, despite Trump's repeated efforts to stall until after the election. The door has been left open to reevaluating the issue in March, but poor Judge Cannon has been in over her head since the day Trump appointed her. And this case is so far beyond her level of experience that whatever she says today could easily be tossed out tomorrow. So let's head to New York, where Judge Ngoron dismissed yet another motion by Trump's lawyers to declare the $250 million civil fraud case against the Trump Organization a mistrial. But late Friday, GOP Chair Elise Stefanik filed a bullshit fucking ethics complaint against the court based on, of all things, a Breitbart article 
alleging that Ngoron's principal law clerk made donations to Democrats above and beyond what New York State allows. Whether or not Stefanik's letter leads to an investigation, that of course remains to be seen. But unless some other stupid thing happens, Don Jr. is scheduled to be the first witness to take the stand for the defense on Monday. By now, you may have heard that Michigan, Colorado, and Minnesota have all heard cases challenging Trump's right to be on the ballot in the upcoming primary, based on Section 3 of the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, which basically states that if, like Trump, you engage in an insurrection against the United States government or give aid and comfort to our enemies, you will be barred from running for office. Based on that, it seems like keeping Trump off the ballot everywhere should be a no-fucking-brainer. But it's not that simple, my friends. It's just not. Late last week, the Minnesota Supreme Court rejected a lawsuit brought by a liberal group representing Minnesota voters. And they did it by sidestepping the 14th Amendment altogether. Instead, they pointed out that, according to state law, a major party can put anyone they want on the ballot, whether they are eligible to run for office or not. And why? Well, because political parties run primary elections and not the government. However, if Trump wins the primary in Minnesota, the case will be refiled, and most likely it will be decided by the U.S. Supreme Court. Meanwhile, Trump was on Univision, giving us a preview of what he plans to do if, God forbid, he fucking gets back into office, and it's some pretty scary shit. During his pitch to Latino voters, and for God's sakes, Latino voters, wake up, he openly admitted that he'd weaponized the Department of Justice to go after his political enemies. I mean, I wrote an entire book about it. Revenge. For God's sakes, read the book. And he even said he'd indict someone who he's beating him very badly. He claims that it's just retribution for what the Biden administration is doing to him. And this is the problem with trying to hold Trump accountable for anything. His lawlessness knows no bounds. And he will try and normalize his lawlessness by telling us over and over and over and over again just how badly he plans to screw us. And now for the main event. Maya Culpa welcomes back our good friend Ellie Honig, acclaimed author of the national bestsellers Untouchable, How Powerful People Get Away With It, and Hatchet Man, How Bill Barr Broke the Prosecutor's Code and Corrupted the Justice Department. You might also know Honig from his popular podcast, Up Against the Mob and Cafe Brief. Ellie is a CNN senior legal analyst and a former federal and state prosecutor here with us today to talk about the Trump trials and more. So let's go now to that conversation. Okay, so Ellie, nice to have you back on the show, my friend. And let's look, let's just jump right into it, which is what we always do. As a former prosecutor, I know that you were watching Trump's testimony last Monday. What was your takeaway from his combative testimony, his combative style, and his just refusal, plain out refusal to answer questions? It was truly unlike anything I've seen, Michael. And I've seen a lot of witnesses 
go up there with a lot of different agendas. A level of non-responsiveness, self-contradiction, outright sort of uh, uh, just disdain for the process was really unlike anything I've seen before. It was, I'll give you an analogy. Sometimes in a baseball game, one team is losing 11 to two in the eighth inning, ninth inning. They realize there's no chance of winning this game. And so the manager thinks to himself, I'm going to go out there and scream in the umpire's face and get thrown out of the game. It's not going to make a difference, but it's going to fire up my team. It's going to fire up the home fans, right? And and I think that's essentially what Trump was doing. His testimony just on the page was disastrous. Um, Did it make him look defiant or strong? I'll I'll leave that to the the politicos. But I think that's, that's the only way I can make sense of this. He just didn't give a crap, given that he's already lost one of the counts. Yeah, well, look, as the father of a son who was scouted, played a lot of baseball. I would say to you in the eighth inning, if you're losing 11-2, you start putting the bat onto the ball, you could change things around. I've seen a couple of games that went that way. And I think that's what, to use your baseball analogy, I think that's what Donald was actually thinking. He, In his mind, he thinks that he could intimidate Judge and Goron. He really does. He thinks that he could intimidate the system. Unfortunately, then again, to get to your ultimate decision in baseball, you're right. It does nothing for him and other than to his MAGA supporters who believe that he is defiant, that he is strong and that he's going to buck the system and buck the system for them. I mean, I I don't know why Angoron didn't take a harder, just a harder position when it came to Trump? Well, it's, it's an interesting question because the judge and Gorin had a discipline problem on his hand. How do I, look, the ways that normally judges discipline witnesses is it's intimidating. You're sitting there as a witness, the judge is six feet, or not six, you know, a couple feet ab- above you wearing a robe with a gavel and is the king or queen of that domain and everything they say goes. And if the judge says, Mr. Uh, Mr. Witness, you are to stop your answer now. Or Mr. Witness, that is not responsive. Or Mr. Witness, I, I sustain the objection. It's What you said is stricken from the record. That usually does the trick. It's very rare to have someone who is in open and obvious defiance of a judge like this. And it's interesting. Early on, Angoran tried to discipline Trump through just persuasion. Mr. Trump, you need to knock it off. He asked the lawyers, Mr. Kais, can you control him? And then Angoran threatened to get out the heavy punishment, which would be to throw out the testimony and draw an adverse inference, meaning I'm just going to assume the absolute worst about what your testimony would have been. And after that, though, and Gordon sort of drew back and almost went with the like, you know, sometimes when a toddler's having a temper tantrum, you go, just let him get it out of his system. He'll, he'll, he'll scream himself out eventually. And Gordon went with that. I think Gordon did not want to get lured into, and he kind of did, but not too badly, into a personal one-on-one situation where he's doing things that lend credence to the notion that he's biased against Trump. So he could have done better overall, but I think ultimately the judge landed at a point of like, be above it, let him do his thing, not without any restriction, but it's it'll be over in a couple hours and I won't create any appellate issues here. Well, right. That's what I was going to ask you, because I could see Trump sitting down with Kais and Haba and this guy yeah. Cliff Robert and saying, what can we do to increase our chances on appeal? 
Yeah. And they say, well, you know, get into a disagreement with the judge, have him take an adverse reaction towards you, and then we will use that for bias and so on. That's what it almost to me appeared because when I was on the stand, right. Alina Haba, Chris Kyes, even Cliff Robert, they would jump up if I was trying to explain right. further than a Not yes or no or, response. Yeah, beyond, right, right. And it's funny because they were like, especially Alina Haba, who was asking the questions of me. And she would say, Mr. Cohen, we've been down this road before. It's not our first rodeo together. They're yes or no questions. Just answer them yes or no. At the end, your counsel can easily come back on redirect. You know all about redirect. You can come back, and then you could do whatever it is that you need to do. Well, that's not how it works. Right. When it comes right. to Donald Trump, for everybody else, sure, that's how it works, but not for him. And, and, it's and amazing they, they have that too. They have this concept of a two-tier system of justice. There's the system for you, and then a system for me. And this is what they tried to do with you when you testified, Michael. And I think it was fundamentally unfair because you have always been consistent on the way things work. You said, "Did Donald Trump ever look me in the eye and say, Michael Cohen?" I need you to falsify these numbers so we can use them to get bank loans. You have said no. He works in other ways. He lets you know what what needs to be done, like you compared him to a mob boss. And so when you're asked, did Trump specifically tell you, you truthfully say no, but there's an important but. No, he didn't say explicitly, but he made clear in the following way. So it's a a lawyer trick, the yes or no, when sometimes there are questions that, that require or lend themselves to a yes or no. Sometimes it's just not the case. So I, I think they tried to um, shut you up before you could give a nuanced answer and hope that that would make it go away. And then the greater part is that Alina Haba and Donald, right outside the courts, uh, the court doors and the court steps, they each individually sort of say, Cohen lied, right? right. He perjured himself. The we DA won the case. Be, we, right, exactly. We won with... Without acknowledging that four lines or four paragraphs after that specific question by the, uh, I believe it was the Senate Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, yep. right. one line out of a 500 page transcript, they think that that's going to make their case. That's their Perry Mason moment on the aha, we got you, you lied. Now, I do acknowledge, and I did acknowledge that I lied to Judge Pauly about tax evasion and the HELOC. Right. But then again, if, if she would have looked or if Judge Ngoron would have allowed the um, government, would have allowed the attorney general to put into evidence my um, sentencing report, then they would have realized that literally since 2018, I've been saying exactly the same thing. I pled guilty to it. But how do they think that they're going to end up defeating the attorney general's case in this specific manner based upon me pleading guilty, going to prison for a crime that I did not commit? It was, How does that have any effect on his case? It, it was an it was such an odd moment when Trump came out in the hallway and said, "We just won the case." I was on air at the time, and I think there was some confusion. I think people were like, "What did was there a ruling or something?" And I knew what had happened right away. I said, "Let me explain <laughs> right. what this is." 
They think they scored some points on Michael Cohen, and he's saying therefore they didn't. He didn't win, and it was. I said it's almost bizarre. I have to say this, but no, he's not won anything. We're still in the middle of this trial. Um, so, I w- was that the first time you saw him, Donald Trump, in years? In five years, the first time. And of how course, was it? The, well, that's the question everybody keeps asking me. It was as if I was seeing a stranger walk past huh. me in the street. I had okay. absolutely no feeling whatsoever. It could have been anyone sitting right. at that defendant's table. I wasn't intimidated by him. I wasn't yeah. impressed by him. I wasn't concerned about what he was saying or what he was doing, throwing the temper tantrums up and down. Literally, he walked out of the testimony right. towards the towards the end because they made a motion for a directed verdict right. based upon, again, the fact that I had lied to Judge Pauly about the fact that they had threatened to indict my wife right, in 48 right, right. hours if they I do didn't not understand what a directed it. verdict is. Yeah, we think we scored a point does not equal to directed verdict. And that's funny because that's what Judge Ngoron said. Whoa, whoa, whoa. First of yeah. all, I'm not so sure that Michael Cohen is the key witness in this case. He's certainly a witness in this case, but there's enough witnesses and enough documents in this case to fill this courtroom. So right, he goes right. absolutely denied. Oh, and right. I've never heard I've never heard a judge say that one either. Um, so you gotta give Angoran a couple of the points there too. That's the equivalent of in a uh, few good men where the Demi Moore characters she objects and then she loses. She goes, Judge, I strenuously object. And Tom Cruise has the whole thing about, Oh, you strenuously object. Well then <laughs> Yeah, what did he say? Absolutely denied? Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. denied. He absolutely re- rejected it. So let me then move on and ask you then, how about the Trump children's testimonies, Don, Ivanka, and Eric, yeah. right? Um, I mean, were they any more effective than their fathers? They were different. I, I think Eric Trump did not go particularly well because he, and I think you've probably told me this, but I know it's why he was the most involved, right, of the three is that right? Well, no, no. I would say okay. he was the most involved from 2017 on. Okay. When the way that the trust, the Donald J. Trump trust, uh, was put into place, Don and Eric were the trustees. Yep. And Alan Weisselberg was the executor. So right. it required at least Alan's signature on any document, along with at least one of the boys. So um, Eric Trump tried two, to claim... Eric yeah. was definitely more involved okay. than Don. He, he tried... You know, they all, to varying extents, tried to distance themselves, say I had nothing to do with it. With, with it being the, the creation... Not the whole business, but the creation of the statements of financial condition, which, to some extent, makes sense. You wouldn't necessarily, as a, as a VP, as, you know be putting together these spreadsheets. But Eric got confronted with emails where he was, he, he was, he was in fact involved. They were from 2013. So he might argue, okay, a couple emails 10 years ago slipped my mind. But he, but he did get called out on that. Um, there was a strange combination of trying to justify the valuations, but also trying to claim I knew nothing and had nothing to do with it. It's like, do you know or do you not know? Are you vouching for these or not? Um, I think there was a sensationalistic aspect, though, to calling, especially Ivanka. I mean, her testimony didn't really go much of anywhere. I know she was part of some of the transactions, but I do object. I do think the way that Letitia James grandstanded about calling the children 
does to me betray a, a poli- part of, I mean, a political motivation, not as clearly as the fact that Letitia James campaigned for office on Vote for Me and I'll Nail the Trumps, but a subheader of that is when you call the children and you're holding twice daily press conferences and tweeting about them all day long, lend some credence to, to Trump's criticisms. I will say, I think she made a mistake there. I think you want to be above it, be above it. You want to let the facts and the law be the fact and the law, do it in the courtroom. Prosecutors love to say we do our talking in the courtroom. In this case, Letitia James is doing her talking on the courthouse steps in front of the cameras and on Twitter. And I think it's maybe to her own political benefit, but to the detriment of the case and the process here. You know, except, look, we already know that the liability portion of this case has been decided. So this is now an issue of disgorgement. How Mm -hmm. much? And under normal circumstances, I would agree with you on that, other than the fact that Don and Eric happen to be co-defendants in this case. Right. Ivanka skated out because of the statute of limitation issue, which I still... I'm still looking into because I'm not so sure that I thought the statute of limitations on this had not run yet. But, you know, who am I to question anything? I I would have to say, though, that Ivanka's testimony mm-hmm. was actually not irrelevant at all. Yeah, and the me. reason being, well, I don't I don't think it's so irrelevant. Much, I just don't think it tipped, tipped the tables either way. I, I think what it did is, in all fairness, for me. I think it helped to confirm so much of what I had been saying all along. In fact, I think even uh, Eric's testimony confirmed a lot of the things Mm -hmm. that I had said, which was they all knew that the numbers were not accurate, which makes the statement of financial condition somewhat skewed, and you're technically not supposed to take a... Um, fraudulent statement of financial condition and use it for purposes of either obtaining loans, the insurance, right. or business opportunities. That's where Ivanka comes in. She was the point person just taking two specific right. deals, the Doral and also the old post office. Now, right. just using the old post office as the example, remember that property is owned by the government. It's owned and operated through the GSA, right? The General Services. The way that they were able to get this under the by, under the Obama administration really raised a lot of red flags to a lot of people, none greater than the Pritzkers, who were massive Obama supporters and obviously have a massive hotel chain on their own. Now, one of the beautiful things is Trump coming out and saying, listen, we had a better plan to develop the old post office and our financials were far superior to that of any of the other 10 candidates that were trying to fill in the RFP, the request for proposal. Well, sure, sure, your financials are better than everybody else's because they're not real. So it sort of gives you an unfair advantage if you're submitting something that is illegitimate and clearly, as Letitia right. James's case points out, is grossly overinflated. That's where Ivanka's yeah. testimony was coming in. And I personally think that if you combine 
what I had just said just about the old post office with all the various statements made about the statement of financial condition, not just from Alan Weisselberg, from Donald Bender of Mazers, mine, Jeff McConney's, uh, Don Eric's, right now Ivanka's. You put them all together. And right. I think, I think uh, the attorney general has proven her case. And I think the disgorgement will be probably into the 600 million. 600 million. Wait, but they're only seeking 250 million. No, they're seeking a baseline of 250 oh. million. That's the way that the complaint reads. Uh, it's nothing less than 250, but as Tish James would tell you, sky's the limit. It'll be interesting to see the defense. And I think, which starts tomorrow or, or Monday. Um, what I think they're going to argue is two things. One, they're going to try to justify at least some of the valuations, right? They're going to have maybe experts, real estate people, I don't know who, saying this number, there's some subjectivity, you have to factor in the brand name. That part, I, I'm skeptical they're going to be able to do. They're also going to go at the notion of materiality, which does not matter for the one count the judge has already ruled on, but does matter for the remaining counts. And they're going to argue, I'm interested in what your responses materiality you know michael but for the for the listeners materiality means that in order to be a fraud it has to be a lie that somebody believed and relied on and they're going to have witnesses maybe even from deutsche bank or the lender saying we didn't really care we thought that number was fine we're professionals we checked it out we were still comfortable making this loan we made it they repaid it with interest no harm no foul um that'll be the second maybe the predominant but but those will be the two lines of defense i think we'll hear in the upcoming weeks um yes i've heard that from a few different um individuals here's the problem with one the defense no harm no foul that doesn't that doesn't change anything uh it doesn't change the liability which of course and Goran has ruled on, nor does well, it change Well, on that count, it doesn't change anything. You right. do need materiality on some of the remaining counts. Yes. What they That's why I think be, he ruled on that one, but not the others. Uh, possibly. But one yeah. of the things that we're also taking a look at is you, all the money that was then taken. Remember, there were only two banks that would actually do business with Donald. Deutsche One of which was Deutsche Bank, and the other was really a, um, uh, a private equity fund, the one that Jack Weisselberg, the son of Alan Weisselberg, uh. ladder capital. Other than mm -hmm. the two, nobody wanted to work with him. And many of those other financial institutions would laugh at these financials, and they would say, well, we actually did do some pretty significant digging into your net worth. And we don't really see how you're coming to this number. Remember, that statement of financial condition did not include the brand value. That was right. always in a separate two-page document that had a claim that, you know, the brand was worth $3 billion. Now, right. I'm not 100% sure that... I would even acknowledge that regardless of when the Trump name was at its all-time high, and that, of course, was during the apprentice years, that the brand value is worth three, $3 billion. And there's multiple ways to even look at brand value. 
Do you look at brand value based upon the total income derived by that brand, and then you assign a multiple to it? That's how one would probably look at brand value. Then there's another one. Can you really separate out the brand? Can you separate, for example, Coca-Cola outside of the soft drinks? Right. I mean, have you seen Coca-Cola Probably only underwear? in a very, very limited sense. But yeah. I mean, have you seen Coca-Cola, you know, um, right. automobiles? I mean, right. you know, what, what usage other than for soft drinks could you possibly use Coca-Cola for? So but they would argue this, Trump goes anywhere. It goes on steaks. It goes on waters. It goes on hotels. All that. Aha. Great uh-huh. response. The one I was hoping that you would <laughs> okay, say. Okay. Now let's hear. Good. Trump steaks. Bankrupt. Trump ice. The only reason it had any income is because all of the assets were required to use What's Trump, Trump ice? ice. Is that vodka or something? No. Trump ice is the water. Uh, oh, that was the water. Uh, created during The Apprentice as well. So Trump ice right, was only sold at Trump uh, hotels, Trump condominiums, at Trump properties, down over... Uh, where did they get it from? I... Atlantic City? Did they like just fill it up under the sinks? <laughs> no, it was probably through a fire hose. But, uh, you know, <laughs> no, nah, it was done, it was done <laughs> the proper way. But there was very limited income because, like, even there was a time that we tried to put Trump ice into a supermarket chain. And as a right. favor, they put in a whole slew, a pallet or two of Trump ice. First of all, it was more expensive than the competing brands. The plastic was much thicker, so it didn't taste as, as good, so to speak. <laughs> and it didn't sell. For whatever the reason is, it didn't sell. Okay, Other go to that, Trump Vodka. Success. <laughs> Correct. Trump there Vodka. There was Trump Vodka? I'm not misremembering yes. that? Yes, there was How Trump was it? Vodka. It was, it was based out of Israel. Um, or it was Israeli mm. partners. It was made from potato. So it was a oh, potato yeah. well, that's, vodka. The reason I know that is because that's what you need to drink on Passover so you can stay kosher. No, there you have it. So thank <laughs> you for that. Helpful tip <laughs> and, for your listeners. And um, that also went under, as did Trump mortgage, as did right. a whole slew of other, you know, Trump stakes. They all went out, the ACN product, Trump University. So again, I bring it to you. When you're valuing the brand, well, what's the basis for $3 right. billion? Dollars? Right. Yeah, I think that'll Plain be the question. And the answer is, there is none. It's a hypothetical number. Do you think that right. there's anybody out there that would have bought even the Saudis who you know, have some interest in Trump? Obviously, we know why, right? The whole Kushner relationship. But they're now doing things with him with Live Golf. Okay, I get it. But even the Saudis would not give Donald Trump $3 billion to control the Trump brand. They just wouldn't be, do it. This will be an issue of trial. They'll, they'll debate the value of the brand name. This will be part of the defense, part of the rebuttal, perhaps. Um, yeah, it's an interesting uh, autopsy. Into, well, it's not dead yet, but examination of the Trump business and what it really meant. Right. But again, remember that the brand valuation where he claimed it was more than three billion or three billion was never made part of the statement of financial condition. It was always an addition to page document that was stuck into each year's statement of financial condition for the insurance 
brokers and for others to see. So mm-hmm. let me then move on and ask, because we started to touch upon this. How do you think that Judge Ngoron has handled himself so far? I mean, because you've said really that the 5000 and then the $10,000 fine that Ngoron handed to Trump for violating the gag orders is highly unusual. So do me a favor, well, to, my, to my listeners, yeah. explain why. So it's unusual, first of all, to have a gag order in the first place. Um, they exist. Judges do at times limit what parties to a lawsuit or a criminal case can say. It's, so it's somewhat unusual to have a gag order. It's even more unusual to have someone violate it. Like I said before, people do typically tend to fear and listen to judges and be very wary of violating a direct order from a judge. And it's even more unusual to have it done twice. Judge Ingoran, you know, these fines, five and $10,000, aren't going to mean much to Trump. But again, he's got a discipline problem. These small fines aren't going to matter. He, I guess he could ramp up the, the amount of the fines substantially. Theoretically, he could lock up Trump for violating a gag order, but he's, that's not going to happen. That's completely unrealistic. Um, overall, I think Judge Ingoran has been a mixed bag. Um, I do think he did a good job staying above the fray the other day. He didn't do much to discipline Trump or hold him in line, but I'm not sure that's even feasible or possible. Um, I think I'll give you an example. His summary judgment motion, which I thought I had here, where he granted a ruling in favor of Trump, excuse me, in favor of the AG and against Trump before the trial started, it's thorough and it's convincing and it's well supported. However, the criticism I have of it is it should re- it really reads more like what a verdict should be than summary judgment. Summary judgment means I'm going to I'm going to take all of the facts in favor of the team that I'm going to rule against here. I'm going to take all the facts in favor of Donald Trump, all the disputed facts. And even if that's the case, he loses. What Judge Gordon really does in that decision is not really summary judgment. It's a verdict. He says, well, the AG says X, Trump says Y, I find Y ridiculous, therefore the AG wins. That's fine as a verdict and I think well supported, but I'm not sure it was the right move for him legally to do that as summary judgment because he's not really saying, well, let me give every presumption in favor of Trump and Trump still loses. So I think he may have a little bit of an issue on that summary judgment motion down the line. Well, certainly that's what Chris Kyes and Haba and you know, Cliff Robert, the uh, yeah. the legal dream team, you know, are telling Donald that this is probably an appealable um, issue. I I don't I don't know. I'll, I'll be I'll be honest with you. I don't. Yeah. I read it uh, as well. It's one aspect of the case, and right. as it it's stands right yep. now, it's yeah. As it stands right now, that and of course being an important part. Uh, now it's just about the dollar amount. If the judge had waited and issued this a month from now when the case is over and said, here's my verdict, I would say it's unassailable. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's reasonable. It's supported, all that. But by issuing, I don't know why. I'm trying to get myself inside his head. Why would he have been so eager to rule against Trump on this one count pre-trial on summary judgment? I, I don't know. Um, but, you know, I, I guess we shall see. So let me ask you this, because I think Trump has on their witness list the defense witness list, 127 named witnesses. However, number 127 is actually more than just one person. It's anyone that was previously called by plaintiff. So it's really like 150 because they called 25. 
Right. So, I mean, not or, one twenty. They call twenty five. Yeah. So the, yes, but of the twenty five, I think uh, about half uh, are on were you know on both lists. Don right, Junior, right. Eric, yep. Donald himself. Were. Do you think I'm not? I'm not on oh. the witness list. Which oh, okay. I was going to ask you. <laughs> why do you think that they were smart and didn't put me? Or <laughs> did they did they feel that they weren't going to give me any credibility? But if they chose to call me back that they would have the ability to do so based upon number 127, anyone right. called by the um, attorney general. By they want no part of you. They want no part of you. Um, but also they are covered by that number 127. You know, witness list, when you're putting together witness list, you have to be as broad and inclusive as possible because the last thing you want a judge, the last thing you want to do is discover some important witness and judge go, he's not on your list. And, and at times judges can actually prohibit you from calling a witness I don't think they're going to think they're going to call 127 witnesses or anything near it, but they've said they need a month. They've said they're going to go into mid-December. I think most of the witnesses are going to be bank types, accounting types, expert types, valuation types who are going to try to lend some credence. But I think it's going to be really interesting. Are they going to get someone to take the stand and say, I find that the valuations of these properties or some of these properties was valid and legitimate? I presume so. But it'll be interesting to see how that direct and cross examination goes. Yes, it's really the direct that and and the right the cross uh, examination that's going to be yeah the 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 real smack in the ass. So could you imagine you get somebody who holds themselves out as a professional, as a right. true professional appraiser and so on? Can you please explain to me how you get the value of? Let's say seven springs to three hundred ninety million dollars, right, and and so on. Now, if that number was one fifty, I would say that a professional could easily have come up and said, "Well, look, here's the scenario: we can sell parcels because there is the ability to do that. The only problem that you do get into that." is there's no roads. It's all one big, giant, contiguous piece of property. There's no electric. There's no sewer. There's no water. I mean, there's nothing. So that's a fortune to do. So if he's going to say it's 390 because I could put up nine additional homes plus sell the main house, you know, under the highest, highest number, you could not pull down. $150 $150 million of profit there, especially claiming that you're going to build 15, 20,000 square foot homes. It's just not possible based yeah. upon construction costs, thinking that the land value is what, $30 million? A parcel? A, a 10 acre, 20 acre parcel? It just, the whole thing is unrealistic. And I don't think you're going to get anybody significant or anybody with real credentials to put their ass on the line for Donald. Number right. one, knowing he wouldn't do it for them. Interesting. Um, and we'll see if, if they call witnesses from Deutsche Bank to say, essentially, we didn't really care what numbers were on this document. We glanced at it. We knew he was a good customer from years ago. Didn't make a difference. We made the loans. We got repaid. We're fine. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, that may be. It seems like that was essentially the nature of the relationship. But I agree that the valuations are, seem to me like such a stretch. I mean, we're not talking 20% more. We're talking 20, 25 times 
more in some of these instances. Not quite sure how they're going to get there. but You know, I let, saw also see. on the list a couple of, obviously there's a yeah. lot of names that I recognize, but there's one uh, where who's a real estate developer. Could you imagine they bring him on? Now, well, let me ask you a question, sir. You're a real estate uh, developer, uh, very similar to Trump. So he would say, yeah, yes, I, I am. Um, and he's probably put up as many buildings as Trump has. You ever keep a, an apartment in one of your own buildings? Absolutely. Can you tell me how many square feet that, <laughs> is, that it is? Right. You know, and he turns on and goes, yeah, it's uh, 9,000 square feet. Well, right. You sure it's only 9,000? Right. And what's the highest price per square foot achieved in that building? That guy will be able to tell you that, which, again, brings the whole issue of the disgorgement right back to just something as simple as the overinflation of the asset, which was his primary residence. That's the single toughest one to wriggle out of the tripling the size. He said, what did he say at at the tripling the size of the apartment? His testimony, Trump's testimony was like, I may have been counting the rooftop. I may be cutting the elevator shafts or something. It's hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. Let me ask you this also, because I saw on the witness list, the 127 defense witness list, he lists himself. You think that there's any chance that they're going to bring him back? Remember, even during the time that I was on the stand, he was so out of control that Ngoron put him on the stand under oath to ask him a question when you went out of the courthouse, of the courtroom, right outside the doors, and you were making statements to the press yeah, about, who did you mean? Right, right, right about um, you know about the, the person sitting next of, to you, yeah. right? The person saying, "Who were you referring to?" And Trump just flat out fucking lied. <laughs> Came out, he goes, I was talking about Michael Cohen, and then Chris Kais and Haba and Cliff Roberts. They lie. It's monkey see, monkey do. By the way, do you that... think there's a chance they're going to put him back on the stand? I guarantee you the lawyers are like, please, let's not. But if Trump demands it, if he wants another day, he may do it. By the way, that whole incident led to one of the funniest exchanges in the whole case where the judge said, but don't you always refer to Michael Cohen as Michael Cohen? And Trump's like, no. And the lawyers, to their credit, it was kind of funny. The lawyers and Trump are like, we call him much worse than that. Um, I'm sure you saw that bit of transcript. <laughs> you're, like, you're acknowledging, yes, of course. Um, but... Uh, I don't think they have any desire legally, strategically to put him back on the stand. Um, I wouldn't have let him. Ta- I, if I was his lawyer, I would have had him take the fit in the first place. Um, but we know that sometimes this isn't about the legal merit. Sometimes this is about the spotlight and making a point. So, um, gosh, another day. I'm just thinking like another day of him back on the stand. Um, yeah. I, I don't think so, but it, you can't rule anything out with this. So let me ask you one final question on this. You have any predictions about how Trump's civil fraud case will ultimately end? Well, he's already lost, so let's start with that. We write the one count that the judge already ruled against him on. Uh, I, it seems clear to me the judge is going to rule against Trump on all or most of the remaining counts or causes of action. And in terms of the valuation of the loss, I can't give an. It's hard for me without being deep, deep, deep in the nuance. But I think the judge is going to hit him hard. I think the judge is going to hit him with a nine-figure damages amount. And I think that the judge is going to uh, – he's already suspended the business certificate, but I think he's going to find that as well for the other counts. And then it will be up to the appeal. But I, I really do think this will – as much as I, I do believe, as we talked about – but I think both of these things are true. I think – there was a substantial fraud here by Trump that's fairly obvious and over the top, and it's politi- a politically motivated case that's 
based on Letitia James' own words. Um, but I do also think it's going to put a substantial crimp or worse. I think it's going to really impair Donald Trump's ability to do business and his family's ability to do business, certainly in New York, but probably more broadly than that moving forward. Yeah, well, first of all, in New York, once you lose your certificates, you're no longer capable. Yeah. You're not legally permitted to do business, not to mention part of the complaint says that neither Donald or the kids or, you know, Alan Weisselberg, you know, are permitted to do any business uh, no. in New York. I think it was like for five years. So, yeah, that will definitely put a crimp. But I see it. I see this number um, into, as I said, 600s, maybe even $700 million. Wow. You know, one of the interesting things that we, they put us uh, an expert on, an insurance right. brokerage expert, and that broker himself, or I should say that executive himself, stated that as a result of the overinflation of Trump's assets and the way that they gave him um, preferential rates and numbers, that over the course of the years in this um, lawsuit, that Trump deprived the insurance companies. I believe it was like 174 million. I mean, that's just crazy, crazy numbers that we're talking. Yeah. That's where they're even starting to get towards the 250. Then, of course, you have the banks, and then the there's so much here that yeah. goes into it. And let's just take the 174. As you know, you have interest and you have penalties. Right. right? So forgetting about whatever the fine may be. Let's say court fines, $1,000 for each cause of action. Now, that's very much like his uh, gag order fines. That he doesn't care. But if you have the standard 2% per month since the day of the disgorgement, and you on top of that, you know, that's, uh, you know, that's amortized. And on top of that, so you have a 24% interest on the 174 a year that gets compounded. On top of that, you also have fines associated. That's where yeah. the numbers get really, really big. I mean, yeah. just off that 175, you're probably talking about in excess of 300 million right there. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, look, you you would know the numbers far better than I, but I, I think I think this judge is going to hit him with a heavy number, no matter how you look at it. Yeah, I, I do too. And I think they're going to go asset by asset. And that, that's yeah. how they're going to ultimately do it. So yeah. then, okay, Ellie, so moving on, because we spent a lot of time talking about this civil case. And yeah. um, it's, uh, it's important. But mm -hmm. my real question to you is which cases, which cases of Trump's multiple cases are likely to go to trial before the 2024 election? So it, it looks like we have an increasingly clear sense of that, and the answer is one. And it's going to be the federal D.C. election subversion trial, because it now looks like Judge Cannon, who has the federal Mar-a-Lago Mar case, is probably, she hinted or suggested at this, is probably going to postpone the May 2024 trial date. I think once you postpone that, you're into the middle of the summer and into the fall. I think it's probably going to move out past the election. Um, Fonnie Willis does not have a trial date as we sit here now and 15 defendants left. There's no way, even if they started now, they might not get it in before the election. And Alvin Bragg, who has the other uh, case scheduled to start in March, has made very clear that he's willing to back off to let the others go first. Um, it makes sense to me that the federal January 6th case would go first. Uh, it's the most important one. Um, from a prosecutor's point of view, I think it's the best jury pool, definitely, in D.C. It's the one I would want to try if I was in charge of 
all four of these prosecutors, and I had to order it. I would say that one's first. Um, and there's the greatest public interest in it. And by that, I don't mean how many people are going to be watching, which will be a lot. But I mean, it goes to our democratic system in a way that hush money payments or even Mar-a-Lago doesn't. So it seems clear to me that Judge Shutkin's not going to move this case. She's absolutely dead set on trying it before the election. And I think they will. So I put the over under at 1.5. You know, I think one is mm-hmm. almost certain. And I think more than that is maybe, but unlikely. You're talking about Bragg's case, maybe, but unlikely. Yeah, you just kind of never know with all the others. But I, but I, you know, the reason Judge uh, Cannon on the Mar-a-Lago case seems like she's she's willing to and likely to postpone that case is, and she's right. You can't make a defendant go directly from one two month trial that's all day every day, and then give him a week to start the next one. He does have a right to prepare independently and separately for each of them. And so given that these trials are scheduled for right on top of each other, that's why I think she, Judge Cannon, is likely to move the May date uh, back a little bit. But w- we could hear about that at any moment. Yeah, look, I, from everything that I know, and of course being involved in it, I have not been told that March is off the table by any stretch of the imagination. For Alvin, so, yeah. Yeah, the Alvin Bray case. Now, well, you know, the funny I'm, thing I'm basing that on his public statements that he's willing to move off the case. Willing and, to. Yeah, right. yeah. But, you know, if if the Judge Shutkin case stays, he'll have to because they're they over, they're at the same time. So I totally agree. Right. Yeah. But so far, I guess he's waiting to see what Judge yeah. Chutkin ends up doing in order to make his decision. I think that's right. And there's there's an outside chance... Trump gets some traction on his immunity argument, his presidential immunity argument, which, again, outside chance could result in some sort of stay from the appeals courts or something like that. So maybe Alvin Bragg is like, let's see what happens. If something happens, that month will open up and I'll be here. Exactly. So a lot of of crazy going on in Washington, D.C. Yes. The House, our Congress, has now called Hunter Biden- as well as his uncle, to testify about supposed influence peddling. Now, the GOP is still trying to get a Biden impeachment, but they don't seem to have any evidence. Forget about real evidence. They don't seem to have any evidence at all. So my question to you is, is there a case here? And are they not just hurting themselves by continuing this false narrative of that talk about his retribution? Talk about, oh, well, you impeached our guy not once but twice. Well, January 6th insurrection, you know, having, you know, I mean, yes, they did. Democrats impeached Trump twice. This is nothing but payback. This is how I I sometimes can be politically naive. When Israel happened, when the attack happened on Israel on October 7th, and when we had the whole speaker's dilemma, and now that we have... A, an upcoming government shutdown, I naively thought that this is their chance to just quietly drop this stupid impeachment inquiry. They can they can sort of slide out under cover of all these other things. And it would look so ridiculous to revive this when we have so many pressing issues around the world and here. Mm-hmm. I was wrong because now that, as you say, they're back full force. Here's the thing. They just don't have it at this point. They've been in they've been in office, the Republicans, for almost a year now. Where are any results? They have 
they have the hint of a hint of a hint of a shadow of speculation of conjecture that there might be some link between A and B, but they don't have that link. And just for a contrast, Michael, when we were at an impeachment inquiry phase in the Ukraine case, right, the first impeachment, mm-hmm. we were hearing daily testimony, live public testimony from Alexander Vindman, from Marie Ivanovich, from Bill Taylor, directly... All Republicans. Right, all Republicans. I mean, directly on point of what the scandal was. We had the transcript of the call. We had tons of evidence. Here it's like theories about a loan and a check. I mean, they've tried so many theories. None of them have panned out. Look, I, I'm a believer in Congress. I don't care who's in charge, having very broad investigative authority and powers. And they do have that, and they are exercising that. And by and large, I'm of the view of let them go. They can, they can investigate what they want. If they have the goods, then we'll go from there. But we're... 10 months in to them taking, 11 months into them taking office, and they just don't have it or anything remark, anything really substantially close to it. So I'm I'm unimpressed with this. I think this is a Hail Mary to, to they're not going to get anything of use out of Hunter Biden. Um, he may fight it in court. It'll be interesting to see. I, I can't believe they're still doing it. It strikes me as a complete waste of time. Especially considering they've lost every, you know, every major... Uh, election going well, on and, now since and politically, 2017. Let me tell you something. I had a green, I'll keep the person anonymous. I had a green room conversation with a Republican member of Congress a month or so ago. And this member of Congress was a little like, you know, eh, I don't know about this whole impeachment thing. Uh, and I said, here's the problem for you all. Now that you've opened an impeachment inquiry, if you don't impeach, Dems are going to hang it around your neck and say, look at these guys. They went so far as to open an impeachment mm-hmm. agreement. They didn't find anything. They never impeached. And this member of Congress said, oh, crap, you're right. I didn't think about that. But they continue to barrel down this path uh, that that's either going to lead to a, I mean, again, who knows if they do find some smoking gun, which they've not, then maybe it'll be different. But at, at the present, they're barreling down a path either towards abandoning this and embarrassing themselves or bringing a ridiculous impeachment and embarrassing themselves. And what's amazing is that they keep talking about how Hunter Biden or uh, what's his name, Uncle James, uh, that you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, over $100 million, they throw out these incredible, incredible wacky numbers, as right. you just said, unsupported. Yeah. Which brings me to my next question. And it brings me to your recent book, yes. Untouchable. Great book, by the way. Where you talk about how the rich get away with murder. Well, let me ask you this then. What about Ivanka and Jared? You think that they're going to escape prosecution for, say, the billions that they took from the Saudis or any of the other nefarious dealings that, by the way, we know are true? It's not speculation. Right. Jared Kushner took over two plus billion dollars from the Saudis. He took like 500 million from the Emiratis. Here's- what about them? Yeah, and, and I, I have a chapter on this in the book. The problem is our federal corruption laws have been narrowed, narrowed, narrowed by the Supreme Court over the years to the point where, as I quote one prosecutor who said to me, a guy who's been doing corruption cases for 30 years, he said, given where we are with the Supreme Court and the laws right now, you can't charge anyone with a federal corruption crime unless you have a videotaped exchange of an envelope of cash that says cash for votes on it or something like that. In other words... Influence peddling, quote unquote, is just not prosecutable at this moment. And if you want to blame anyone, 
this this I love this because everyone wants to go. It must be those sleazy other side of the conservative or liberal Supreme Court. It's both. One of the only areas the Supreme Court has been unanimous over the last several years is these corruption cases. They threw out Jack Smith years ago, got a conviction on the then Virginia governor, Bob McDonnell. Jury convicted him. Court of Appeals upheld it. Supreme Court threw it out unanimously. It was 8-0 at the time. Someone had passed. I guess uh, I guess Scalia had passed and they had a vacancy. And if you want to see an example of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg agreeing with Justice Clarence Thomas, right there. They said, no, he did some favors for the guy. He took gifts for the guy, but he never like vetoed legislation for him. So it's not specific enough. Threw it out. Bridgegate, Chris Christie, say, I mean, similar thing. They basically said, well, they might have done something for a bad political purpose, but there wasn't an economic reason. Again, 9-0. So the, these corruption laws have been narrowed, narrowed. I'm, I'm not trying to make excuses for prosecutors here, but they're at the point where mere influence peddling just doesn't get you there. That's because there's all of K Street, which is amazing. But it was yep. funny because at my at my trial, well, I shouldn't say at the trial that I was um, just <laughs> not your trial. For, it's not my trial. It's Donald's trial. Uh, yeah. One of the things that Alina Haba kept trying to, to bring out, well, people hired you in 2017 because of your relationship to Donald, and I was like, right. eh, what's the relevance? Right, it's right, the same right. exact. It may, it, it, once again, I mean, she's she's just an ass clown. Let, let me just move on for a second and say I want to go back to Georgia for a moment, and the of course the looming uh, election fraud case there. Yep, I want to take a little bit of a different angle on this. Okay, Sydney released the Kraken Powell, went ahead and she pled guilty to charges, but yep. she's now turned around and yes. said. That she only did it to avoid jail time. And not only has she said that, but she continues to spread the big lie. That's, you know, that's the part that I find offensive. I've been saying, like, for example, in my my case, I went to prison, right? I pled guilty to protect my wife. Right. This lady was pleading guilty, in her opinion, in order to protect herself, to avoid jail time. Now she continues to spread the big lie. You think that Fannie Willis should yank her plea deal altogether? She can't. She she blew it already, Fannie Willis, the way she structured this plea deal. I wrote a piece on this for Cafe Brief, which I do every Friday. And I basically argued when Sidney Powell, when news came to Sidney Powell had pled guilty and there was an agreement to testify, the big question was, is this full cooperation or is this half-ass cooperation? If it was full cooperation, meaning Sidney Powell completely owns, admits, and takes responsibility for everything she did, then it's a game changer. It's a massive win for prosecutors. But anything short of that, which we now know it is, is useless. Because as you noted, Michael, Sidney Powell is not a viable witness for Fonnie Willis because Sidney Powell will take the stand and say, she's now made clear, say, yes, I pled guilty to misdemeanors for breaching the equipment in Coffee County, but I also still believe there was election fraud. I believe it then, I believe it now. I have proof of it then, I have proof of it now. I advised Trump of that then. He was smart to listen to me. That will tank the case. They can't call her. The problem is Fonnie Willis has already given her the reward, right? Fonnie Willis has already given her a vast reduction. And now, and, and, the, and the only requirement is that Sidney Powell testify. You're supposed to give the reward on the back end. You're used to, you are familiar with this, Michael, because this is how the feds do it. They say, you're going to plead guilty to everything up front. If you cooperate fully, then you get the benefit, the sentencing letter, what we call the 5K letter, on the back end. That's how you keep them in line. 
by Fannie Willis giving these deals out and giving the huge benefit right up front, she can't control these witnesses now. So Sidney Powell's gone. Um, look, Fannie Willis superficially has done a good job in getting four people to, to plead guilty and flip, but none of them have pled guilty to racketeering. None of them are going to spend a day behind bars. And she can't, none of, well, we don't know about Chesbro or Jenna Ellis, but Sidney Powell sure as heck is not, I guarantee you, there's no way a prosecutor, Fannie Willis or anyone else, calls Sidney Powell as a trial witness because if they do, it will completely backfire on them. Yeah. And yeah. Fannie Willis has not done this correctly. And as a result, she's let Sidney Powell out of the case for a misdemeanor and a wrist slap, and she's not going to get any benefit out of it. Yeah, so Trump sees that as a victory for him. She's fine. You know, she stayed loyal. So if by chance that he yep. actually wins, you know, she's back in the good graces. She did great for him. You know, me personally. She's more likely to be a defense witness at this point. I, I totally agree. But for me, I refused the 5K1 letter. I never signed a 5K yep. cooperation. I would never be a cooperator with them. I said, if you want to ask me a question, I'm prepared to give you the true answer to it. But you have to ask me questions. But I am not. Asking you for anything. I'm not looking for your 5K1 letter. Why? The reason I did? Because I knew that I didn't fucking do it. And I really thought that Judge Pauly was smart and he would read my, right. m- you know, my sentencing report and turn around and at the time of sentencing say, whoa, 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 you know, we really need to take a look at Mr. Cohen's sentencing report. But instead, yeah. he just came back. Oh, Cohen committed a smorgasbord of crimes. <laughs> and that, you know, uh, that it was a sophisticated scheme by putting all the money, which were either wires or checks, into Capital One Bank, located at the base of the building that he lives in, and providing bank statements in an orderly tabulated fashion to his CPA to do his tax work. And because there's an error, we're talking about some sort of a massive scheme to defraud that was sophisticated. Whereas I, of course, call it the most unsophisticated scheme <laughs> if you're going to tax evade. Well, well, right. it, 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 it is what it is. That's yesterday. And I, you know, I, have, a, I have a big um, appeal coming up December 14th uh, at the uh, Thurgood Marshall before the appellate oh, on my case well, of Michael Cohen versus United States of America. Oh, this uh, is Department you suing them for, justice. for throwing yeah. you in jail for not signing the, the, the waiver, the silencing agreement? That's, that's correct. The violation of my First Amendment constitutional right. right. So we'll see what I, happens on well, that I've, one. Well, I've said publicly, I think you're in the right here, and uh, we'll see. Yeah, hopefully. I, I appreciate that. So you've also <laughs> said that the Fulton County DA's charges against Trump are unnecessary. Not 100% sure what you meant. Would love for you to explain yeah. why you no, feel I'm, that way. I, I'm not. Here's here's important clarification. If the perspective is everything possible needs to be done to convict and imprison Donald Trump, then great. The more the merrier. More charges mean more chance of conviction, more chance of imprisonment. So um, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about in the bigger picture of prosecutorial fairness and restraint and uh, use of resources and just fair play. And I'll, and I'll tell you why. Bonnie Willis's indictment really only cover, with respect to Donald Trump, doesn't appear to cover any substantial new ground beyond what Jack Smith already has charged. And why is it in the better interest of fairness and justice to have a pylon, to have a second person bring essentially the same charge? And I'll tell you, DOJ policy actually says don't do this. It's unfair. It's, it's an overextension of our prosecutorial power. If somebody's already been charged by the state, 
then generally speaking, not necessarily as an automatic rule, but generally speaking, we should not be piling on with charges for the same conduct. And I think the same, the, the reason for that is just a sense of fair play and not piling on and not sort of maximizing every possible instance of prosecutorial power. So I don't know what Fonnie Willis's case adds, excuse me, I don't know what Fonnie Willis's case adds in terms of the overall pursuit of justice done fairly and within existing prosecutorial norms. I think it's a pile on. I think it's repetitive. Uh, and I think thus far her pleas have, I mean, have her pleas have been largely artifice and not actual progress. So I do remain uh, critical of the case. I think it's unnecessary again to the larger pursuit of justice. If you just want to nail Trump, every state AG, all not seven state AGs should have charged him. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I'm not on board with that. Understood. So let me ask you this, because we're both Jewish. What's your take <laughs> yes. on the debate in Congress? I mean, like Rashida Tlaib was censored for her statements on Israel. But there's also folks in Congress saying, and I quote, Gaza should be turned into a parking lot. And those are those are coming from GOP members. And there's quite a few of them that they want to level Gaza and everything that's in it. I have a real problem with that. All right. Yeah. These people are also not being censored. What's going on here? Uh, I can't explain what's going on in Congress. It's you know not my expertise, and I don't know that it's explainable. I'm going to dodge this one. I'm not a geopolitical expert. I'm Jewish like you. Uh, I am pro-Israel. As am I. I don't have really much more nuance to it than that. Um, Congress is going to work out whoever they want to censure or not, I, I can't, they can't even begin to explain it. I don't know that it's explainable, but, but I think Israel certainly has the right to defend itself. I think they were attacked in a horrific not way. Even, not even the question, by the way. Yep. That, yep. Not even the no, question. I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to figure this imbalance between, you know, yes, she, Rashida Tlaib deserved to be censored in my opinion. It's my right. opinion. Censured, but, right? Like, like lectured. Like, yeah. Correct. But yeah. shouldn't, the GOP members that want to destroy, turn the place into a pocket. That was the point I was yeah. trying to make. Uh, yeah, so I'm, not a, I'm not a big fan of censure for speech anyway. No matter how reprehensible speech might be, either way, I, I think censure should be based on someone's conduct. Someone got a DUI, something like that. I, I think if people want to say things even that I virulently disagree with, I don't think censure accomplishes much. Yeah, me too. So let me ask you this, because the hour goes by quick. Last yeah. question for you. And it's an area where you... Your area of expertise. I'm going to go right into it. Some shocking news the other day. Okay. 19 members of the Gambino crime family. Huh. I didn't, to be honest with you, I didn't even know that they were really still active. Right? <laughs> I, I, I actually, I have to tell you, I didn't see this. Tell me. 19 members. Yeah, so 19 members of the Gambino crime family were arrested on racketeering and other charges in New York and as far as to Italy. They got some of them oh. in Italy. See, now, I know mob is one Holy of crap. your areas of expertise. I'm looking so, this up right now. Okay, I'm Here just trying are. to ask you, you know, what can you tell us about this case? Clearly, you didn't know about it, but... No, you know. you're breaking news to me right now. Uh, you, uh, let me start with this. You're right that the mob is not what it used to be. It was probably at its heyday, if you want to call it that, um, in the, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, into the 70s. Um, they've gotten much less violent. They are much less of an impact. A lot of it's just economic. I mean, when I was prosecuting them, they were making a lot of money off of drug trade, off of gambling. 
I mean, sports gambling is now legal. I don't know how they make any money off of it anymore. Um, I want to see this, but it's interesting that they made the connection to Sicily because that was something that honestly I was always trying to do, but really never succeeded at. So if it's connected to Sicily, it could be really pretty serious. Oh, here we are. I see. It's all over the place. 16, the U.S. and Italy. Who are these people? Yeah, so this actually is pretty interesting because this is more than just your sort of garden variety um, gambling, loan sharking, extortion kind of stuff. So um, I don't know. Maybe they're back. Maybe they've decided to take it back to the homeland, to Italy, and and, and ramp up the crimes they're committing. Thank you Thanks, again, Michael. Great always, to talk to you. Friend. I will be seeing you very soon in the green room again over there at your second home at CNN. Uh, be good, my friend, and um, <laughs> stay safe. And now for today's mea culpa. I hate to break it to you, but Robert Kennedy Jr., the newly minted independent candidate for the presidency in 2024, has incredible poll numbers. I mean, for a guy who oozes privilege, it's hard to believe that average Americans would find him appealing. It's partially name recognition, I'm sure. That and his anti-vax conspiracy-laden theories about absolutely everything that I guess some voters just can't get enough of. But have you heard him speak? I mean, the guy is fucking batshit crazy. No two ways about it. Just read the latest profile on him in Vanity Fair. Seriously, read it. RFK Jr. is a mean and nasty nutjob. But what is he really? Is a spoiler. A candidate being paid to keep Joe Biden from winning re-election. Last week's off-year elections proved that Republicans can't win elections in the traditional manner. You know what actual votes? So they will gerrymander, mess with voting rights, and we just saw in Mississippi, and back spoiler candidates with the hope of defeating Biden. So ask yourself why Joe Manchin has suddenly decided that it's time to leave Congress. Well, because Mitch McConnell told him so. Mitch said, and I quote, Joe, I'm going to give you a shit ton of cash to spoil the race for Democrats. Manchin has embraced the No Labels brand, which claims to be a humble group of Americans trying to bring leaders together to solve our biggest problems. But look who is backing No Labels. Well, here's the answer. Harlan Crow and a whole gang of mega-rich, dark-money robber barons looking to steal elections away from the people and give them back to the rich. I mean, my friends, do your research. No labels is no bueno. Jill Stein is saying she's running again, Green Party. But what does Jill Stein do when she's not spoiling elections? The answer is she just crawls out from under her rock every four years to say, hey guys, here I am, ready to offer you absolutely nothing, but an alternative to the folks who deserve to win, the folks that we need to win. Vote for me. You remember years ago when Ralph Nader, then a Green Party candidate, decided to stay in the race in 2000? Well, Al Gore sure does, because Nader handed Bush the win. Call this a spoiler alert, but Cornell West, we see what you're doing and it's not progressive. It's pandering to the rich. 
Voters beware. Not everyone in the race for the presidency wants the job. They're just in it for the cash and prizes. Hey folks, if you'd like to see me live and in person, join me and my special guest Katie Fang at City Winery in New York City on December 9th at 2 p.m. For tickets and more information, go to citywinery.com and I hope to see you there. And as always, my friends, most importantly, thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is written by Paula Killen. Our managing producer and editor is Lisa Orkin. Mea Culpa is a Midas Touch podcast, executive produced by the Midas Touch Network and LSJ Media Group. Oh,